Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Well, seeing as we're friends now, I don't have any real compunction admitting that I arrived at the Jody Morris interview with Redrim Dyes um, from Tears. We'd been driving down to Cobham when we heard that Johan Cruyff had died. It was a shock. Not only had I been interviewing him recently, but he'd said he was nearly cured, and then he was gone. Jody, I was interested in talking to because he knew what the ball was for. You could say that although he'd never met him, and we talked about him a lot, he was a disciple of everything that Johan Cruyff stood for, and he was nearly as upset as me. And that meant that we were on an even ground before we started talking football. The thing that had attracted us to Jody, and I hope that you enjoy listening to, was that when he first encountered Xavi, he asphyxiated him from a Champions League game in 2000 at Stamford Bridge, where Pep Guardiola was injured, and Chelsea won 3-1 in a blitzkrieg of a performance, three goals in seven minutes. By the second leg, it was the Manchester City manager to come that Jody Morris was up against Pep Guardiola. And he managed just as good a job playing against the ultimate of Cruyff's disciples and pupils. But the team didn't, and they lost 5-1, and they went out. Jody's career, having started in a training ground that couldn't have been more polemically different from the Cobham, where he now trains Chelsea's youths, Jody's career went wrong, and he'll talk about that and explain why. And it wasn't to do with naked yoga with Luca Viali, although that did put him off his stride for a month or two, and I guess you can understand why. He was taught by Hullet, he was taught by Hoddle. He knows what space is, he knows what vision is. He likes to talk about having rear-view mirrors attached to his head because he was a terrific player. His career went wrong because of choices, because of reputation, but he never lost his ability to play football. And what's transpired is that he's got a fantastic ability to teach football. All of us, Martin, Neil and I, when we talked to Jody at length, felt that Chelsea's youngsters and maybe youngsters to come for the England team are in the hands of somebody who will help them become a hybrid of what Spain has, technically intelligent, brave, creative, able to manage games, and what Britain has always had, hard, warrior-like, but not inept strategically. We talked to a disciple of the beautiful game. We enjoyed it hugely. I really think you will too. Listen on. 
it's a theme of this series, the big interview, that we love footballers who knew what football was for, what space was for, how to pass the ball, play with their head up, and therefore I'm sitting opposite one. Somebody who I saw uh, not quite making your debut, but I was working in London, and I thrilled to seeing this homegrown Chelsea supporting, if I'm not wrong, of course, yeah. product and Jody Morris breaking through at a time when something really odd was happening to Chelsea because it was like well before Abramovich, but it was the most cosmopolitan club in the country bar none because of a wild set of coincidences. But I think there we've learned in the interview here, Jody, that people listen to us and they think year one probably began with Mourinho or year one began with um, Julia at Liverpool and we all know that's not true. One of the things that you've spent most of today working at Cobham, mm. the exceptional training ground where you're working with, I think, under-18s? Under-18s, yeah. Under-18s. But it wasn't, when you were an under-18 training with Chelsea, it wasn't always like this. I was quite friendly with Luca Vialli, who's just agreed to come on this series in a couple of weeks. And I remember him telling me about Arlington. <laughs> when you were breaking through, try and explain to people how different life was for you or for the stars at Chelsea's training ground. Well, yeah, it was light years away from what the boys are used to now, first team or even the, the younger boys. But when I used to first go into Harleton, because when I was at Chelsea as a kid, as a seven, eight-year-old, it used to be first training in... The, there was a, a shed behind the back of the shed yeah. at Stamford Bridge, and we used to train there on a Monday night. And then we moved on from there. It was like a little concrete area. Eddie Nisbisky used to take me as a, like an under-eight and stuff like that. But then we moved from there to Battersea Park on the Astro, so that was kind of where you'd go once a week. But my first experiences with Harleton was always in the school holidays, because that was the only time you could get there, which is obviously near Heathrow Airport. So you've got continuous planes going over very low to where the pitches are. So if a coach is mid delivering some tactics, it, it might have to wait a little while, especially back in the day when it was the you know, Concords and stuff like that. Because um, the noise, literally, no, yeah, noise it was, level yeah, was no, yeah, it would be. If, if it, on a serious note, nothing worse than if you're a coach and you're trying yeah. to put a, a point across, or you're trying to speak to somebody or group, and one of the planes goes over it, you literally do have to wait. You have to wait until the, the plane lost five, six minutes. Of course, yeah. Literally, there was no gym. There was nowhere to eat. It was small, little changing room areas. No carpet. No nothing. You had like a little cabin area where the physio used to treat some of the players, and then you'd get changed and that was it. And then obviously when I got older and I was in, the, in a, as a schoolboy, I'd help out in the youth team and we'd have to take all the kit from Harleton, drive it back down the M4, back to Stamford Bridge, clean Stamford Bridge, all the dressing rooms there, wash all the kit, dry all the kit, fold all the kit up and then go back to Stamford Bridge. And because I was a local boy, I was only lived down North End Road, I would then have to go back to Stamford Bridge in the morning, load the kit into the kit man's van. Terry Byrne it was at the time, kind of gone on to... He's bigger, gone on to quite a good thing. Gone on to a few bigger and better things, as Terry. Um, yeah, and then load all the kit and then travel back up the M4 in the morning before all the first team got in and laid the kit out. And, but, yeah, we, you wouldn't eat there. We used to have, a, like, a little dinner ticket type thing that when we went back to Stamford Bridge, this is how much has changed, we had a dinner ticket thing that we could go to a kebab shop near Fulham Broadway Station and we could get our dinner there. Mm -hmm. Funny enough, it was... I always remember John Spencer. He was really big on what you're eating and all that. I was not. I, I Spenny was. Spenny was. Yeah. You did. Did you substitute him for your debut? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. No, no. Spenny, like, as the, the amount of stories that I heard from people when I got older about him coming up younger in Scotland and all that, he was a bit of a 
live wire, to say the least. And Beautifully phrased. But compared to what he was with the younger lads and stuff like that, he was very much what you're putting that in your body for. And he saw us ordering one one time behind the jump. I think I was probably just on a burger and chips or something, something like that. And he kind of went mad. What he did? What are you sticking that in your body for? Like, went mad and was like, you shouldn't be putting that. You're an athlete. You can't, can't be putting that type of fuel in your body and all this. It makes you slow. Especially you when you're little, you used to always say, you're little, you need to stay quick and sharp. It was which, big on which from him was from the heart because he, yeah. he would be similar size Yeah, to you. a little bit bigger than me and a lot quicker than me, I have to say. But, but, he, but equally, he, but yeah. he had to also he had to be... struggle. With, he struggled with that. Yeah, he needed to be sharp and know where... Obviously, the brain is the first thing that he, he yeah. was very quick at, but at the same time, he, he knew that well, if you aren't the biggest, then you need to be at the tip-top yeah, Because, you know, we'll, we'll come on to this. You're echoing things that, since I moved to Spain, I've been taught over and over again in interviews or private chats or going to training sessions or whatever by Xavi, by Iniesta, by Guardiola, who, who considered himself small and spindly and was told by a lot of people that he, w- he said himself that he, he wouldn't have made it in any other team than Cruyff's Barcelona. But, you know, compared to you, he was significantly taller, mm. Mm. maybe not stronger, but significantly taller. So when you talk about if you're in the heat of battle in midfield and your brain is working, that's important. But you also just need what John was saying to you, that half metre... Your brain gives you half a metre, maybe the other half metre. You need just to be able to move away from a tackle yeah. or, or somebody trying to knock you over. Most definitely. And for me, it was I didn't realise it at the time because when you're young, you, you automatically think you can eat what you want and do what you want. But when I first made my debut, it was, it was six weeks after my 17th birthday. And if I look at what my body was then as a... Not to now, obviously, <laughs> slightly changed a bit, three years retired, but compared to what kids are now like at 17. My, my body was way off anything near that you would class as ready for first-team adult football. But similar to what you're saying there about Pep is, if it wasn't Glenn Hoddle as the manager that gave me my debut, there's not a hope in hell that I would have been put into first-team football at that age simply because of my frame. They would have said, nowhere near ready for first-team football, the hustle and bustle type thing. But where the Hod was very much if you can technically play and you know where you are in the pitch, it doesn't matter if you're moving the ball quickly enough before someone's getting close to you and you're not a liability as far as when you haven't got the ball. I mean, you don't have to be the biggest. I'll say it to the boys now. As long as you put people under pressure and hustle and harass, you don't have to be a Patrick Vieira-type galloping, trampling over type people in midfield. But when we've got the ball, if we keep it and we use it the right way, it literally doesn't matter what size you are. And like you said, Chavi and people like that have proved this. I always think of a Leon Britton mm-hmm. as the perfect example for me is that he played all the leagues through with Swansea, great little footballer. I remember him young thinking that West Ham going, yeah, he can play and good footballer. Goes to Sheffield United and can't get in a team. Goes back to Swansea and then obviously they're, because they play a certain way and they use him in the right way, doesn't matter what size you are in midfield. People look back in the day, used to go, oh, centre midfield, stick him out wide or like he must be playing the 10 or to come out of the midfield battle. But as I said, I was lucky enough that I was coming through at a, at a club where they played a certain way. Glenn Hoddle changed the way we played at Chelsea, playing three at the back, a pivot in midfield, holding midfield, where all the play would go through me as a young kid, like Graham Ricks used to play in the youth team, but we played the same way. And it, it just kind of helped me stature-wise that I was being taught to play the game the right way. You talk about that brilliantly, as, I mean, which you need to do as a coach, but as if it's innate to you, second nature. but. Presumably, you've also been well taught over the years. Now, you were making remember a phrase that 
Graham Ricks always used to, I think, you, as you were coming through the real youth ranks, it's like, keep the ball, circulate the ball, the ball's your best friend, but remember why you're moving the ball. Mm. There was always supposed to be... Did you automatically know when you had the ball at your feet at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, what the ball was at your feet for? Or did it help to have it reminded to you that it was meant to be kept and controlled and then used to somewhere intelligent? Yeah, no, I'd say at the younger ages, I would just go buy people with skill all the time. It was because it was easy to do. It was, you just run through as many players as you want, pass it when you need to type thing. It wasn't until I got a little bit older, I went to Lillyshaw in the national school and Keith Blunt was a fantastic coach and taught us many different aspects of the game as far as tactically and things like that. But as a midfielder, he was really good for me as far as not just using the ball. It wasn't necessarily how we'd done it at Chelsea, but it was certainly about getting the ball forward, not necessarily when you have loads of time. So, for instance, if you was getting the ball played in from, say, a fullback and you're facing the fullback, but can you play into a front man in one touch? playing round corners and then go again to get it. That helped me playing forward that side of the game, not necessarily at the right times at time. I think there was times where you didn't need to play forward and you needed to keep it. But as I said, there was those aspects of being able to play forward whenever you're under pressure or protect the ball whenever you're under pressure. That when I got to Chelsea and we were talking about circulating it and moving the team around to create space, that started coming more under the the huddle sort of era when he was manager. You've opened the Pandora's box here. Mm. Um, one of the things that we've begun to try to do in this series is maybe explain some jargon. Two weeks ago, Duffer used transitions. Mm. Now, I thought I knew, but I think that's used so glibly now by football coaches and analysts on television, it was important to explain that, and he did really well. But I've heard that round the corner a lot, and every footballer knows what it means. Mm. Is there any way for those maybe who like to watch football but don't play it, that you can, when you talk about putting around the corner, can you break that down, what that means, actually? Well, for me, it doesn't matter where you're doing it, but it literally means that when the ball's travelling to you, first and foremost, you know where you want the ball to go to, but not necessarily there's always a free passage to wherever no. you want to play the ball. No. So before you either receive the ball, whether it's coming from a teammate over a distance of 5, 10, 15, 20 yards, I think you need to check one scan, check your shoulders, see first and foremost where you want to play it. Is your teammate in the right position where you want to play it? But then two, you need to be thinking of who can intercept that ball. So the one round the corner for me was always you'd look before the ball was coming. So if, say, a defensive midfielder or whoever was trying to stop you playing the ball, they'd be watching the ball mm -hmm. rather than you. You've yeah. already checked your shoulders. <laughs> and then as the ball's travelling, as they start moving towards you, they don't know that you've already checked and seen where it's going. So it looks like you're facing back to where the play is or wherever you want to be facing. And whether you go towards the ball to create the angle that allows you to play to where you play, or whether you move away from the ball, whether you control it and do it, whether you do it in one touch, whether you spin it round the opposing midfielder. I mean, for me, it's just getting it to somebody where it doesn't necessarily look like you're facing to play. It's not an obvious pass, but it is one that can take out the opposition whoever's trying to oppose you, or it can get it into an area where it's not necessarily for you. The old round the corners back in the day used to be great if you could go around the corner and get it back. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's not just for you, it's for the next person. If you're breaking lines, if you like, you know, like the opposition defensive midfield could be getting into a, somebody in a better space or better position for you to then hurt the opposition. But it was certainly something that, for me, the best person I've ever seen do it was Glenn Hoddle when he used to do it every day in training and you just never knew where a ball would be going 
if you tried to stay off him, he'd then take a touch and then take it towards you and change the picture straight away by moving towards you. And then there's different options for him to use. If you tried to put him under pressure, as I said, he'd flick it with the outside of his left boot. If you, if you tried to close that one down, he'd let it run by him and then do it again the other side. It was, for me, he was the most impossible person to try and defend. You see, he's got something that... Um I try not to get hidebound by always talking about fantastically talented and intelligent smaller players. There's things I've learned during my career. I remember we were lucky enough, a group of us used to play five-a-side football sometimes with a guy called Arnau, who was Messi's captain in the B team. And he wasn't a bad lad, Arnau, but he liked to play fives and he liked to, so he would nick away and have a little oh. game of fives. A good time ago now in Barcelona. And he would talk about when he was in the first team training, bumping up against Ronaldinho. So he felt about Ronaldinho what you felt about Hodler, but he said, if you try to take the ball off Ronaldinho, it doesn't matter what part of his body, whether it's his thigh, his shoulder, his mm. arse, whatever, you know, you bounce further than the average Scottish first division player controls the ball, you know, yeah. it just went off him. Yeah. And, and Glenn was, was big, he you know, was a big footballer who could shield the ball. Rude had that, but I think people forget how big a unit Zidane was. Yeah. You know, these are Hodler, Zidane, these are three genius footballers in terms of technique and vision and bravery mm. and what they want to do with the ball. But also, it's the opposite of what you and Xavi and Iniesta yeah. and Messi have had to contend with. They could also move you around or bounce you off, yeah. right or wrong. No, most definitely. And, and for me, it would determine how you'd play in midfield because, as I said, at the younger age groups, I could do things where I could go by people. The older I was getting, everyone was getting quicker. Everyone was getting bigger, even bigger. So it was like I was always probably the smallest and the slowest in any team I played in, mm -hmm. probably from under 11, under 12 to I finished. But at the same time, I think when we got up through the ages, I learned how to deal with that better than some players that maybe never made it. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I would maybe, like you said, I would use an area where I would play and probably do things before I received the ball a lot better than people that would maybe rely on controlling it and then running past people. And, and it was probably why I... When I went up and played, say for instance, say for Millwall, who we didn't play much football, my effect on games certainly dwindled because it was more expected that I would be second balls, hooking the ball on, trying to run up and down up the pitch. And you can only be as good as the options you have around you in midfield for the type of player that I was. And, and like he said, Pep could only play like that for a Barcelona team. I think it's the same as like Xavi. You put Xavi in a championship team or yeah. a team in a premiership and if, if nobody's wanting balls or not expecting to receive the ball and making angles to receive the ball, you'd never see the full potential of what a Xavi could do. You need he, runs. He went further. He, he, I think you're right. And if he were here, he'd agree with you. And he said if he was playing in your average Real Madrid team, he said, I would never have been picked. I would never have reached where I went to. They play a different style of football. They don't want what I've got. And he understood that if you if you take you know milk and you mix it with vodka, it's not mm. going to work. It's, you know things are meant for a certain purpose, mm. and he knew where is it. And that's one of the things that has been really interesting about these footballers that I met over there is that they don't just understand how to do it. They understand that they're part of a system that is benefiting their particular talents, mm. and that if they went elsewhere, it would it wouldn't happen. I wasn't comparing myself to them too, by the way. <laughs> I did. I did. I, I'm going to I go did realise that I mentioned mentioned myself there in the same bracket as Pep and Jamie. Well, it's we, not quite we, like we, that. We're going to come on to moments in your career where <laughs> I think that's fair. So you mentioned Glenn, and, and I found him when he was England manager a difficult man mm. um, to get straight talk out of. But what I'm also grown up enough to realise is that every quality footballer that I've ever talked to says that he was an exceptional coach, that England 
as a country, as a national team, lost maybe somebody who could transition the resources available in a better tournament play, better possession play. But going back to your experience, short experience of him as a coach, what did he do in coaching, apart from showing the skills that made you enraptured by him, or what was it that made him a good coach? Because he catalyzed Chelsea in general as, a, as a, mm. in his presence there. What would stand out now, retrospectively, for you? First and foremost, it's maybe not one that you would attach to him from the outside, but I, I had a real fear factor of Glenn Hoddle. Mm. I have to say, um, as a manager, as far as telling people when they were out of line or even if it's walking down the corridors and seeing youth team players walking by a bit of kit and not picking it up or mm. leaving things untidy and stuff like that. If he ever caught you taking a rest, sitting down, reading when you should be helping your teammates with their jobs, um, he would certainly let you know. Um, so first and foremost, the, the fear factor from him was certainly one that I felt and I'd seen him speak to the first team players in a certain way where they made no mistake that they knew what he was expected from them. And then you get the the visuals that you get when he's taking part and he's the best player in training every day. You can't help but just look in awe. And as I say, he's certainly one of the best I've ever seen in the flesh. But as far as coaching, I, I think it was his, his attention to detail. He was certainly one that the way he played, you'd automatically think, yeah, he wants to keep the ball. He lo- likes to focus on the technical side of it and lets people make mistakes and stuff like that. But he wasn't just... I don't think he was all guns blazing, oh, yeah, let's play and let's not sacrifice the way of playing the stuff. There were certainly games where he wanted to play 3-5-2 and that was the way that he wanted to play. I thought that was maybe the way that he stuck to most. I want to play 3-5-2, even though he changed it towards the end. There were certain games. But it wasn't just 3-5-2 to keep the ball. It was also... 3-5-2 because it was the best way to pass through and if we had to go over we could go over yeah. teams if we had to switch play he loved the diag like, I mean he hit it great but there was he certainly put players in at the back Rudy put Rudy at the back a few mm-hmm. times Cer- certainly someone in the pivot or at the centre of the three that could hit that pass so when you're bringing teams on and think that they can put you under pressure because you want to play out he had no qualms whatsoever that if He'd done something, or the way the team was playing was bringing teams on and going up against a high line. He had no problem about going over it. And when you say going over, again, I think we all fans, journalists, we use expressions lazily. So that long ball comes in and it's become derogatory, whatever. But at Barcelona, when Luis Enrique changed things significantly last season, there was a lot of resistance to, I think, exactly what you're talking yeah. about, which is if you've got super forwards and you're being pressed and you don't want to play through the middle because you've got a chance of letting the ball loose to players who run onto it. It's not a long ball as we knew under no. Charles Hughes. Hughes yeah, it's for us. Yeah. It, again, exactly. it's, it's uh, keeping the ball and circulating had a purpose. Mm. So did that type of long ball you're talking about? Yeah, long yeah ball. I mean, I, mean I, I know, for instance, we had Tony Cascarino up, up front way before my time, but it, I know that it was when a time where you wouldn't necessarily go, right, I'm going to play the boy over the top to Tony Crascarino. You just no. wouldn't do it. It, no. it does have to suit a purpose of what yeah. you're doing. As you said, it, the fact that you're bringing teams on, it's not necessarily that you're setting out to go, oh, yeah, I want them to have a high line. But, one, you need to offer a threat if they are going to have a high line. So, yes, you can hurt them. But, two, it will then get them off you again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It may then allow you to do your other things because if they get punished You've a couple of times... You've taught them once, of course, so they retry it, and then you can it, play again. It's the same now. I mean, as I said, even that with our group that... Uh, throughout our academy, we want to pass the ball as much as anybody. But don't get me wrong, if a team wants to defend on the halfway line and we've got three players that are lightning quick and 
a right side centre half or whoever at the back has got time on the ball to pick out whatever pass you want, then do it. Why wouldn't you score straight away from... By the way, and we're not saying booting it because no. that is one of the things that you have to teach as well, is that there's one thing having 360 awareness when you want to play in midfield or you work wherever you want to play in the park, but there's 360 awareness and there's plenty of players that have got that great in little possessions and everything's short, 10, 15 metres. or t But the real top, top players have got that 360 awareness, but it broadens out. You're talking 50, 60 yards and they're the top players because even if you are one that's great at the go-round corners and, as I said, keep seeing things, people think you've got wing mirrors and stuff like that. <laughs> but it's like there's no point if the opposition or opposition managers or coaches see that. If you don't ever hit the long one, then you're then killing yourself as well because yeah. it's, you do need to be able to... It's sterile, Of course. It? If you're playing that type of football, short, 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 and never going long, it, no matter how good you are, a good organised team will be able to nullify you. This is what... I mean, we're all fans. That's why we last year. But Martin particularly, his point was always that there are certain players who have become venerated in British football at St Johnson. He was mentioning the fact that you were always looking to make that pass through a gap or into a space or take a risk, but as well as being able to have the vision you've talked about and be able to keep it short when it's important or see 60 yards, there's a degree of risk because any pass like that that can open things up, if it goes wrong, you know that a stupid teammate might be on your back or an idiot manager might jump on you, the press might do so. But also, one of the interviews we had was with Chrissy Waddle who said, like, when he was in his pomp, he could hear the slapping of the seats as everybody stood up in mm. anticipation. Mm. He also said that he could hear the groan mm. when he wasn't quite at his peak. The adrenaline over here and people standing up in the seats going like that and the groan, they were equal proportion in the plus and the negative. And to take a risky ball, I think that's something else as well as the vision and the technique. You have to accept risk. Of course. And the thing is as well, it, it all depends on one, your manager or your coach that is asking you to play a certain way and whatever your game plan is. Because ultimately you do have to follow the game plan of the manager or you might find yourself out of the team. I, I, but as going to the, the Waddle, I remember at Millwall where we'd be one side of the pitch and we'd be maybe sort of on the edge of the attacking third and we'd get play and, and I'd open out and have a bit of time and switch play and I remember doing these parties as a young kid at Chelsea at Stamford Bridge and you switch play and Stamford Bridge would stand up and give you a, a ripple and go because they were used to watching football. If I had done that pass and I would hold up and go, for me that is a great pass, you've got the ball out of a congested area, yeah. there's traffic in there, you're getting it out your full-back or your wide man's now in acres to attack. But at Millwall, if I had done that pass, it was like you said, the groans. Because it was like, if I had time on the ball, why am I not putting it in the box? Mm. Why am I not hitting the striker that will be standing on the opposite centre-half, waiting like big Danny Ditcho, waiting at the back post, waiting for a ball to be just in there and we'll all crowd the box. You'd um, found Barry Hills bombing down the yeah, wing instead of... Yeah, I, I, as I said, it was like literally to switch play, there's all the players, let's get someone out, let's get higher up the pitch on the other side with a bit of space and cross it. And as I said, it was even... At, and you're talking about risk, at, at St Johnston I would play the holding role and you also need to know, and this is no slight on any of my teammates, but we played on pitches up there that were didn't lend itself to passing the ball. No. So... As much as I would say I am all out for playing football and playing out from the back, I also knew that the risk that I would maybe usually take on a decent pitch, receiving it from the back and then maybe playing through a part, I knew that there could be at least three or four bubbles before I received this ball. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. one, I might have to control it first, which then shortens the amount of time that you're going to be having on the ball. And two, a lot of the times, because we didn't really play out 
as much from the back like that, there wouldn't be the option on that you'd hopefully be looking for anyway. And then the fact that you, if you're then looking for it and it's not there, you've then put yourself in a bit of bother. Yeah. As I said, then you've got to get yourself out of the stuck, stucky mud. Like. Well, literally, and the it's, the reason that, it's the reason that I raised it, because we, this chat isn't going to be able to stick Scottish football. But when you stood out as much as the lads, then it talked about skill and adaptability and intelligence, because you have to adapt. I still feel that whatever talents you were born with, to be blessed with, once you get your contract from Colin Hutchinson sitting in Harlington signing the paper, to be blessed with Glenn Hoddle number one, and then when he buggers off to England, it's Hullet next, is a hell of an education, not just in terms of stature and technique and ability and his achievements. He's quite a character to be around. And I've heard you, talk, I'm not going to cheat, I've heard you talking before about the fact that Rood was very opposed to losing the ball in training. And that's a good choice. T- tell us a little bit about the experience of being around this extraordinary man, extraordinary footballer. Um, well, yeah, Rude for me was first and foremost an absolute specimen of a guy. He was huge, but he was one of those that I grew up watching the AC Milan yeah. and many of the young England teams that I used to play for under 16, under 17. We'd have AC Milan videos, Donal, rest in peace, like yeah. showing us how to press like in midfield and when you've got your Ancelotti's and getting over the, and how to stop teams but you didn't really appreciate You're talking about Carlo Ancelotti the, the central midfielder yeah yeah, yeah 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 not Carlo the coach no but yeah. like, and obviously Rudy and, and you saw him there and the power that he used to show and, and, and I have to say when I because I was so young I didn't really see the technical side of him as much I remember the 88 we all remember him as but it was more like this absolute specimen of a guy but if we played what do they call it is it rondos or whatever yeah. you know the little, yeah, bo- yeah. little boxes and that if we'd done that at Chelsea, Rude literally would never, ever, ever give it away. Like, ever. And when I'm talking about the... We're talking about small stature players, myself or whoever, when you get yourself in an area where there isn't an option on the ball to pass or there isn't a, a way out, Rude would just manhandle... He would literally <laughs> manhandle somebody. And I watched him do it at Stamford Bridge, like, continuously, even... I'd just watch a man handle someone for maybe 10 seconds on the ball and just keep looking and waiting for an option to come about, which you're spoilt then because he's not only got the technical <laughs> side of it that he can do whatever he wanted as far as put the ball 60 yards, 10 yards, wherever he wanted. He'd also, if nothing was on, he was powerful enough to protect the ball like for long periods, long periods on the ball of, no, nope, nothing's on yet. But he would never, ever just get rid under and he was like that in training as I said I, I didn't really experience the great coaching side or anything like that for me I, I didn't see that but as far as a, a footballer and an example of how never to give the ball away he was certainly one you see I, I certainly never want to come over as no at all but having met him and listened to him and, and watched him too I didn't necessarily expect that you'd had a, a genius coach particularly having come through Lillishaw where I, I expect that you were taught in a methodical, um, repetitive, excellent way. Probably alongside Jamie Carragher in midfield? He, no, he was wrong. the year above me. He was, my, was he? he was my senior. Yeah, so I had him above me. Michael Owen was the year below me. Good group. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Carragher. But when I was at Lillyshaw, Carragher was a centre-forward. He dropped down into midfield. I knew he was a midfielder and he always no, said he could pass he and went, play. He went, centre, he went centre-forward and then when he left there, he started playing in midfield, made his debut in midfield for Liverpool. I played in midfield with him. For England under 21s. In the energy. World Cup? Oh, no. In the, in the under 20s World Cup, not the real World Cup. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you had a good squad in that. Yeah, yeah. Was, and you won your group, that, eh? Yeah, yeah. No, we got knocked out to Argentina in the quarters. Yeah, let's name some of the names. Raquel Me. Raquel Me, yeah. Omar, Cambiasso. Yeah. yeah. 
good team. Yeah, well, whatever happened to all of them? I know, I know. They won that World Cup, actually. Yeah. You were beaten right. by the, the winners on an yeah. outstanding yeah. set of footballers. Yeah, no, we was good. We was decent. But Cara was, for me, Cara is a footballer. Like, do you know what I mean? He, uh, he, I'm glad you said that, because he gets very chippy when people no, don't recognise no, that. No, he is. And I was always one to stand up for him. People look at him and go, he's a hustle, bustle defender, he put his tackle in. Yeah, he put a tackle in, but he could play, by the way. Music, yeah. Under-21s, at the time, I think he was the most capped, but he used to play holding midfield for Peter Taylor, and he just wouldn't give the ball away. I even say it to the young boy, people look at it and go, oh, yeah, but he goes safe, he goes simple, he, he keeps the ball and blah, blah, blah. But for me, those players are needed at times because it's, I'll say it to our younger lads, is that you can have all the genius you want and amazing technical ability, but... You've got to be some genius to control a game, not just like be able to do things. Controlling a game when you're in an area of the pitch that you, the engine room or you, where you're pulling all the strings. If you can control a game and you're making that pass the safer, the simple pass for a reason, those players get overlooked. For me, like yes, we see the, the always the nice ones through gaps, the delapenas into your feet and mm. fizzing it in. But the ones that control it, and it's less risk, but it should be less risk. You, you, risk via, via what you're describing, you maybe change the tempo of a game for five, ten minutes if you need to, because you're under pressure yeah. or you know somebody needs a breather or you're one up. And one, we always use phrases as journalists, like, you know, the most vulnerable time after you just got to go, well, yeah, yeah. what might you do for the next six, seven minutes? Well, maybe yeah. choose 20 really smart, safe passes yeah. and make sure that that little danger zone is gone again. I, I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah. And I imagine Cara exactly like that. And if you add in his very combat of qualities, but recognise the fact he could play. And before I get back to Rude, I just have always wondered whether they did the right thing losing Lillisol, which I think has probably never been replaced. My personal opinion is that Howard Wilkinson did the English game an enormous disservice by saying it must all be club-based. Mm. And I didn't know at the time that the Spanish system allows what clubs in the Premier League would never do now, in that the Spanish FA goes and scouts through unpaid, older guys who know their football but are just doing it on a voluntary basis. Yeah. They go and scout all over Spain, and the best 14-year-olds are identified, wherever they may be, small club, big club, playing regional football. And then when they're 15, the clubs are obliged to let the Federation have them for a couple of days, every month for three months, when they're taught the Spanish national systems, whether it's yeah. 4231 or 433, how to adapt, behaviour, they travel a little bit mm. with the nationals, just things like that. And it strikes me that maybe I'm wrong because you lived at Lillisol, but one to be selected as one of the 15, 16 most excellent in your age? 16, yeah. Says something already, but I guess you were taught standards, you were taught tactical transitions, you were taught things. There's some kids at academies throughout the years until now might not have been taught. I, I just think that Lillishaw, I, I never really understood why it went away apart from cost, is my yeah, opinion. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can understand if... You don't agree with me? No, no, I do. I'm a massive... Lillishaw was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It was unbelievable. It got me out of the estate that I grew up in at a time when things were could go either way. I'd seen friends do certain things and mates in football that were really good and all of a sudden not taking part in football anymore. But it was great for me, as I said, on a, on a personal note, but also on a learning the game. Keith Blunt was outstanding for me, the coach. He taught me the, the, the defensive side of the game, the individual side where, as I said, me being not the biggest, like, he would always try and get out of me wanting to go and have rows with the opposition as far as going into tackles, to, to stupid tackles. Was that a natural tendency? It, 
Yeah, because I'd always been the littlest, and so I, I always felt probably a small man syndrome where you just feel like you've got to go and when you're going in for tackles, with everyone's normally bigger than me, when you're going in for tackles, you then go in that extra bit harder. You don't ever want to be the one to come away going, oh, yeah, I'm the... You feel like that because you, maybe you've always been like that, but I see a lot of players you have that who naturally would rather play their way out of trouble, would never, ever do what you do. There's a certain yeah. gene inside you which says, well, I don't know, which helps. I yeah, no, no, I have to have Most it. definitely, and, and like I said, it was one of the things, and it's something that, by the way, I, I wouldn't have been able to get on in my career if I never wanted to mix it because as I said it's not like we were playing Barcelona football and you could keep the ball for 80% of a game there's a lot of it that you have to do it's the dirty work you need to want to run off the ball you need to want to sort of go beyond people you need to track runners you want to be able to protect your defenders like and when there's tackles to be made or challenges to be made then if somebody gave you one you surely yeah, you could give yeah, it back to that, yeah. those were the days when that was obligatory. Yeah, I mean, I came through at a time when I was playing with Dennis Wise and stuff, so there's no one better to teach you tricks of the trade of when you might not be quite physically matched up to people, but you would match up with them in other ways. As I said, whether it's because you're clever or whether it's because you feel that you have to do it to get one up, I think you would do it. But as I said, the Lily Shaw side of it thing for me is I, now that I'm working at Chelsea, I, I can't look back at it and go, oh, we should all have a Lily Shaw because I, I believe in what we're doing at Chelsea and a lot of the stuff, I have to say, a lot of the things that our philosophy and the excellence that we're expecting from the boys and sort of like we like to call them winning behaviours and stuff, is it's what Lily Shaw was when I was there anyway under Keith Blunt. Do you know what I mean? There's so many good things that came out of it, but ultimately now it's just, I think, the way things have changed. I get the one where the Spanish boy, if they're going away and they're being taught a, a way of playing and if... I believe that England had that mm -hmm. and it was going to be here yeah, forever, I then I would understand yeah. that one. Yeah. But at the minute, yeah. as far as our identity goes, I mean, who would be able to explain our identity Thank now? You. you can in Spain, it's clear to see. But whether we'd be able to do it in throughout all ages, I think that they're trying at England. I, th I think they're definitely trying to do it. But whether it's ingrained in the, the DNA, yeah, the DNA I, I don't know. Unless you have a GPS, then there's no point in saying I want to get to... You know, Babylon, you need a GPS and mm. there's no philosophy. And that's it's fundamentally going to flaw a nation that for many years hasn't been able to retain the ball or pass accurately, mm. I think is a central problem. So when, when Rude disappeared off into a cloud of nettles and taxes and was sacked out of the blue, I mean, I was here then and it was just, it felt like the most extraordinary club in the world at the mm. time. And am I right in thinking the next manager had been your roommate yeah, we'd room quite a quite a lot. Uh, it's Luca Viali. Yeah, yeah. Gwyn Williams at the time was kind of he was good like that, where he'd prefer Viali to be rooming with the younger boys, like, as this amazing ledge that he is. He's a pretty extraordinary guy. Well, well this is it. It, it, this is, it does make me laugh though, because it, it was almost like, yeah, I want Luca to room with Jody because I was young and like I said I'm a London boy and a little bit went out too much when I was younger and things like that. And I think he. I was thinking, yeah, stick him in with Luca, and because he knew I looked up to him. I loved, as far as football goes, he? he was an absolute legend and, and the best geezer. He's a He's top an extraordinary fella, guy, isn't top he? top fella. But all that said, he then I go with Luca, and I'm like, okay. He's then ordering club sandwiches at like twelve at night. He's doing this stretching, like don't get me wrong, so he's stretching, but he's naked, stretching in the middle of the room. I'm like obviously a, an eighteen year old kid rooming with this guy for the first time. He's smoking in the corner room, stretching and getting club sandwiches at 12 o'clock at night. I'm thinking, 
I know he's a legend and all that, but you're putting in with me as if to go, yeah, this is how you live your life. I'm thinking, if I was smoking, ordering club sandwiches in the middle of the night at 12 o'clock, I'm not sure Gwyn would be too, too impressed. But as a guy, you could speak to him. He wouldn't mind. I, I, I reckon I drove him mad. I would always ask him about Juve and Sampdoria and, and being in, in the Italian national team. I asked him question after question, and he couldn't have enough time for you. But it's first experience, I want, I want to use it as a conduit. First experience I ever had was that an editor sent me over. The event said thumped Rangers, and the editor said, "Why is it we're used to continental teams that playing Scottish teams? Why is it the event is trampled all over uh, Rangers? That's not necessarily what we used to." Okay, fine. So I went over, and um, I was given three days access to the club and training by a friend of of Lippi's, and Lippi was in charge, and Ventroni was the fitness coach. And the first day I was there, I had no Italian at all, so I was begging the club, like, "Who can you turn up that?" They were like, okay, well, after training, you can speak. Viali will probably speak to you, he speaks English, whatever. So, turned up the training, which is approximately, they're there out in the field at 10, they start at 10.30, they're finished by 12. I'm like, great, here we go. No, 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 no. It's lunch, then a siesta, then it's training again. Now, I'd never seen double training, and obviously it's pretty common and understood now. But they went and did another brutal session, absolutely brutal that night, really. You know, there's a lot of technique, and the ball was there, but the physical effort and the doggies and... And at the end of it, Viali turned up in a spare dressing room. And I thought I'd turned up quite plump, because in those days I cared. It's like mm. a pinstripe three-piece suit. Fucking mine had cost about 70 bucks. Viali turns up in a pinstripe three-piece suit that cost about 7,000 bucks and looks mm. a million dollars and walks in, sits down and said, right, let's talk. And off we go. He goes into the training methods and recovery times. And, you know, it was a total eye-opener to me. But I found out subsequently because Walter Smith told me that he was deeply unimpressed with my comparison between Juve's work record yes. and Rangers' work ethic. Yeah. Luke had always been a bit of a lad and yeah. kind of reputation for knowing how to live well. But I think the key thing that gets around to what you were talking about is that he did, in training, he did work like a dog. Amazing work rate, amazing. And to be fair, like you said, it was, I mean, if we're talking about Rude and Luca, they're, they're chalk and cheese as far as working hard in, in training. Like Rude, I'm sure, in his younger years, but at Chelsea, he, even in the first team games, I used to watch and, yeah, he'd walk back from a, an attack and stuff like that. And even in training, but Luca, no, he was full on 100 mile an hour, like properly trained, grass, sweat dripping off him every single day. Whatever he'd done, he'd done it to the best of his ability. And like you said, when you're seeing people like that putting in the type of work rate, it was... I would say at the time it was not refreshing, but because you don't want to say that, but, but rude, you used to think, oh, blimey, he's, he's having a stroll up here sometimes in training, because he could, but whereas Luca, you would, he was very at it. And, Could you say he's a British Italian? Yeah, I was going to sort of touch on that sort of side of it. His work rate reminded me of like a tough like striker that maybe wasn't the most talented. I but think... his thing was, I used to, we used to do a load of sprints because he brought over Antonio Pintus, the U of A fitness coach, who was great for all of us, a great guy, but also for the team, I felt he was really fit. And we used to do a load of like work and sprints and stuff. And Luca was not the quickest by the time he came to, no. to Chelsea at all. And he always used to say, he said, look, why do you think one of the reasons I need to be able to work as hard as I can is because in the first minute to 10 minutes or whatever, their centre-half might be able to stay with me because I'm sprinting. And, but if he wants to stay with me for 90 minutes, I'll fancy my chances. My chances. If, he, if he stays with me for my work rate, I fancy that my sprints later on. And true to his word, we'd do something like 20, 15-metre sprints or something. 
and you see Luca coming last at the first two or three and then you've got jog back and then do it again just continuous work by the 17, 18, 19, 20 Luca's finishing first out of everyone his high intensity work was even though he was at the end of his career and retiring he, he was a specimen like for a passer like you didn't his movement give best. you just the best uh, as I said before if you're a midfielder and you like to pass or you can see a pass as far as Luca Viali as a striker I was spoilt or we were spoilt I'll say at Chelsea because we had probably the best striker in the world with his back to play, Mark Hughes, who he would turn so many bad balls into good ones. He'd glue in his boots, yeah, didn't unbelievable. he? unbelievable. Like... And he would protect it, so, as I said. So he was great for, as I said, playing into the front man or around the corners and stuff. But Luca, as far as whenever you had a bit of time, he would create the gaps between him and a defender from all sorts of movements. But did you, now, did you instinctively know, or did you watch him learn in training about, like, he'll go there, but he doesn't want it there, he's going to wheel and go that way? Did you have to learn to get in rhythm? Or yeah, did he well, teach you, or was that something you just no, you innately well, had? Well, it's kind of one of them things that if you, if you scan properly as a, as a midfielder and you want to look forward and see a pass, as I said, if you're looking before you're receiving the ball, you'd see him on the move, and when he first came, you'd maybe see him on the move and go, OK, he's going in there. And then you go to play it and he's changed his direction. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you then do have to adjust and go, hold on a minute, this guy's something else here, by the way. He's, he's making movements, sometimes one pass or two passes before you even receive the ball. That then told you, you've got to keep checking where he's going because he's making a run for the defender, not for, for himself. Like he always used to say, one for the defender, one for yourself. And like you said, he'd be running one way so if you didn't check again you wouldn't notice that he's checked and that the defender's still going he's created a gap which has gone from two or three yards to now eight yards which makes you look brilliant as a midfielder because it's an easier pass to make like it gives you your scope for a mistake or error is is a lot bigger so as I said you had Sparky holding up when you've chipped it in the air and it's a crap pass or it's not or it's bobbling in and he's just controlling it and you had Luca Viali making outrageous runs that as I said as a midfielder when you had time on the ball was perfect. A night that I, I really remember as a reporter, and you know, I'm an Aberdeen fan, not a blue, but um, you know, my first ever football record was Blue is the Colour when it was released, which dates me a little bit. <laughs> was Vicenza, I think it was Lucas' first home game as manager, was Vicenza? It was the semi final at least. Yeah, it the, and you won was the semis, down, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vicenza was the semis, but it wasn't his first one as a manager. No, his first one was, I think it was Arsenal. Was it? Yeah, in the old, uh, whatever, you know, Coco. Would have been a League Cup or yeah, what, yeah, the League yeah. Cup as it was. Yeah, oh, but it wasn't go, soon after that. Did you go Arsenal and... 3-0. And with, win good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wenger put a, a, a very reserve team. And you yeah, went, but we, we had a, a proper reserve team. Like, we, I Luke, Luca used to use those games for all the young boys, isn't it? Like, he used to play lads that are not in the team, but the, the core of those games, I always remember, were like young people getting their debuts and that. That's why I loved him for that as well, because not only was he... A top top manager, tactically brilliant, I thought. And, Detailed, and, eh? Ah, oh, massively, and especially on on stopping at the opposition. You know, like he was brilliant at that. I felt, and I loved. Give the, me an example of what he might say. One of the things would just be he expected everybody to be able to work for ninety minutes and stop, but he would draw up whatever opposition we're playing and relate to some of the the good players. Say it was Man United or something. He'd be talking about they like to do this. He's the top player, but. And he would go through it on a tactics board for ages and just go, if he goes there, then I, this is where I want you. And then we would see it all on a tactical board and you'd go, yeah, I can see that. Then he'd go out into the training and we'd go through little passages of play where ultimately on, when it came to the games, more often than not, it was you felt confident that teams were going to struggle against you off the ball. Off the ball, tactically. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I thought it was outstanding. Vincenzo then at least puts that into practice because if Ruud was sexy football, Luca Viali's Chelsea was the Chelsea of, come on, chaps. Yeah. Chaps was his big thing. And he sent you all out with a little glass of champagne or spumante or something like that against Vicenza and out you went and 1-0 down and that must have been an exceptional feeling for a Chelsea fan to be 1-0 down against an Italian team yeah. with a relatively new young player manager and yeah. you absolutely go 2-0 down and tear them apart. Yeah, we had to win 3-1 to go through and I got subbed, I think it was in the 74th or something, for Sparky who came on. So I felt I was doing really well and was gutted that I was getting dragged. It wasn't your shot for the opening Poyet goal because... The it comes back off him. I don't think it was my shot, but it does. I know the goal. It comes back off the keeper, doesn't it? And he slides. But uh, no, it weren't my shot. I, can't, I think it might have been Petrescu's, I think. I can't remember. I would have claimed that. Didn't yeah, you? maybe. But as I said, my, my memory is I was devo being... I thought I was playing well and... And then I came off and then about a minute later, he, Sparky flicked on a header to himself who then volleyed it in. And I was like, oh, fair enough, good decision that, taking me off. And it's brutal that for whatever reason, it, Zola was gutted not to start against a Stuttgart side. Yes. Subsequent Copenhagen, World yeah. Cup winning manager in yeah. charge and Jogi Lowe. Yeah. He comes on and scores. But, I mean, how did you feel about that experience? Of, you know, 19-ish, I'm a Cup Winners yeah. Cup winner, but not really... On the night you don't get no, I did. I know I was sub, so I didn't get on on the sub. I, I, as I said, I, I'd played in previous rounds and done a bit, but there was a couple of injuries and Zola being one of them. But I think that's why he was left on the bench. What does because... it feel like? I mean, do, are you overwhelmingly happy for the club, or are you really pissed off that you're already in a Cup and Cup final and you win, but you don't get your? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny one. You do have mixed feelings, but by the time it's not mixed feelings at the end, I'd be lying, but. At the beginning, you're gutted because if you're left out of a team, especially if you've played in previous rounds. But once the game starts, you're just in it. You're switched on in case you have to come on. And then once you cool. do win, and it's a little bit different for me when I'm a homegrown, I'm a Chelsea fan through and through to win something. And don't get me wrong, I suppose they don't... The actual medals that you win, if, you, if you're not playing in the actual final, you could... People remember that who was playing in the final stuff. But it's certainly medals that are nowadays if if it was in today's football I'd have a few more because I'd played in previous rounds and then never made it onto the bench for a final as like an 18 year old or things like that but at the same time you still got to be proud about being involved in cup winning teams and not always the final winning teams are they? The epic that I remember that I wanted that I've been desperate to bring up is features Chavi and features Pep because that stage I'm reporting a lot on Chelsea and you You've had one hell of a Champions League campaign. Luca really trusts you. You're playing a lot. You've played yeah. a huge amount of Champions League football in 1999-2000. Yeah. And um, you've dealt with Milan, which I suppose player of your ilk. Dealing with Milan, no big deal. Lazio, come and win at the bridge, but you draw Barcelona. Yeah. And it's Louis van Gaal. It's funny how these names keep cropping up, but Louis van Gaal's Barcelona. And if I remember it correctly, I mean, it's a blitzkrieg game where Chelsea rip into a sort of fairly ragged bus hunter who could really, really play and were full of stars, didn't dominate the ball, I don't think, as much as they do now. And if I 
I'm correct, you sacrifice almost all the things that make you exceptional, use of the ball and time on the ball and what you might change the direction of a game, to swallow up Xavi Hernandez. Yeah, it was kind of a, a weird one because it wasn't meant to be Xavi. We thought it was Guardiola, um, but he pulled out injured or something. But we, Luca felt that he was going to be fit. So anyway, when the team was announced, it was... Obviously, I was playing. To be honest, I wasn't too surprised. As I said, I felt I deserved it the way I'd played in the league and stuff like that. But the fact that it's Barcelona, you do have to kind of pinch yourself on it. Their front three was Rivaldo, Cliver and Figo. So, yeah, outstanding. And I'd never heard of Chabi at the time. But he pulled me to one side and said, look, it's not going to be Guardiola, but the person that's playing instead of him is going to be just as good. It was like he went... I don't know whether he knew that at the time or whether he was just trying to keep me in you need to prepare for this guy like he's Guardiola, so like to keep me in it. But I was like, yeah, I haven't heard. He went, no, he's a Spanish under-21 international, he's class. He does exactly the same things and you need to play all the build-up, the two days going into the game, you need to play exactly the same. And So obviously there's one part of me because I always loved Guardiola. As I said, the Barcelona teams that I remember watching, I always remember Baquero, little midfielder, one touches and all that. But then Guardiola was a bit after it and I'm like, oh, I would have loved to have played against Guardiola, but you're then thinking, right, who's this Chavi fella? Yeah, <laughs> little do you know, he's probably surpassed Guardiola as a player. But yeah, I remember playing, I had to do a man-to-man marking job. It was literally wherever I am when we lose the ball, it was still fine on it, but wherever I am when we lose the ball, I need to just attach myself to Chavi. And he didn't play much that night, so I suppose that it's... It was good on my point. It was a little bit weird for me. As I said, I wasn't used to playing. I've never, ever done a man-to-man marking role in my life. But I think Luca had trusted me as far as that I would do it. I would think of the team more than I would think about my own game. I, think. I love that. And yeah, as I said, it was on a night where the lads done great as a, as a team. And to beat Barcelona 3-1 at home for a team that's first time in the Champions League, it was a special night. My favourite London cabbie, hello Pat, Pat Moriarty, was talking recently about having been at a corporate with uh, Jermaine Genus talking about when he'd been asked by Bobby Robson for Newcastle yeah. to try and do what you did for Chelsea against Barcelona. And Jermaine answered, who's the most difficult player you ever played against? And he said, Xavi Hernandez. And the, whoever was asking him the, the question said, and, uh, did you see much of the ball? And Jermaine said, I think I touched it three times all yeah. night in the game. And that was a different Xavi Hernandez. But... Let's just take a little tour. You, you've gone on to admire what he's done as a, as a leader, as a sport. You, you'd pay to watch him. However good you've been as a sportsman or footballer, yeah. or if you've done your career, you'd, you'd pay a ticket to go and watch Xavi Hernandez anywhere, yeah. anywhere right? All, all day. For me, one of the greatest ever midfielders. Not just because he's part of the small man club, but at the same time, like, listen, the team that I've, I've watched Barcelona over the last 10, 12 years, for me, is obviously there's little changes into managers and whatever, but the team when Xavi was in the in the thick of it, in the middle of midfield, I think it's the best team, football team I've ever seen. And to see how he would just command the ball wherever he was, he would get himself out of bother, he would control the tempo, he would open up teams, when, especially at Barcelona, when you've got 10 players behind the ball, camped yeah. on the edge of their box, he, he would have every club in the bag to open them up. But to play with all the top superstars continuously and the amount of games he played for Spain and... What was it, the World Cup that they won first, Spain? Oh, that, I thought in that World Cup, I thought it was outrageous. It was extraordinary, wasn't it? It was outrageous. He was, the, the night you marked him out of the game, as a youngster, admittedly, but similar age to you. Yeah. 
he was playing centre midfield, what they call the pivote for Barcelona. Yeah. He was because he stood in the number four position, Pep's position. Yeah. When Frank Rijkaard, because I spent um, several days out in Qatar recently, going back over his career for a film, and he talked about like you know he booed on at the pitch when he was substituting Guardiola. He said it's, it's with an ironic tone. It's funny, isn't it? You know, yeah. now I'm the, the great departed hero, and everybody loves me. And his words, I hate the phrase. He said I was the cancer in the club, according to everybody before. I don't know if you, you probably... I never knew that. You didn't, probably didn't buy El Mundo Deportivo the day after the Stamford Bridge game. Really? But the columnist said um, this game showed why uh, Xavi is, is not even half of Guardiola and he was useless and it's another example of why he's not going anywhere at the club. There's a columnist with this really? thing because you suffocated him at the club and they couldn't yeah. see. But when Frank Rijkaard in about 2004-05 said to him, I want you to play what we might call right midfield. They called in an interior, almost somewhere between a midfielder and inside forward. Xavi was scared and said to Rijkaard, I don't think I've got that in my game. Yeah. And was intimidated by it and freely admits it himself. Really? Which, looking back on his career, is extraordinary yeah. to know. But have you been faced with challenges where somebody said to you, do this, do that, or something's come your way where it's felt intimidating or you haven't been sure if you've got that in your locker? No, I wouldn't say my positioning was changed a little bit. And Rude sometimes used to play me in behind the striker. I, I never used to like that. I, as I said, I, I preferred to not be receiving long balls into me with the, my back to play. And you know, Did you like to see pitch. the game? Yeah, but not only that, I'd also think that in those areas at the top, unless you're passing it properly and keeping it for good spells a lot of the time they're expecting the number 10 back then would be expected to run beyond strikers and get on the end of flick-ons and and I was like that was never my game so there was that side of it but it was never and Claudio and to be fair Luca at times as well they they played me on the side of a, a midfield four but it would be I think usually just to shore up have a more of a hard working midfield and maybe one winger on one side and then more of a midfielder still just slightly tucked in on the other and then maybe you had a fullback behind that side that was more adventurous and then would give you the width. But I wouldn't say nothing really intimidated me in, in that way. I mean, I wasn't really one for getting nervous. Those type of games, I remember going to the, well, I used to call it the new Camp, but since I've watched, <laughs> since I've watched uh, Spanish football and that, um, I've changed there, yeah. so I remember some going bad to, but, bastard yeah. keeps insisting yeah. calling it the camp. Yeah, so I've been. I, I remember going to Barcelona and places like that, and, and just thinking, this is what I wanted to play. For, I wanted to play football for. This is what I. I, I wouldn't get nervous about. And I, I remember coming in after that game, and obviously we lost three one in normal time. It was the second we lost three one. It went to extra time, and then they beat. They scored two against us in extra time. And but playing against Guardiola there was more of a challenge to me. One that I wasn't good enough to stop him playing because he absolutely controlled the game, I felt Guardiola. But at the same time, where at Stamford Bridge, it was easier for me because our team was doing well. Like, do you know what I mean? So it kind of shows you the the difference in team and individual uh, successes. Like, did I do anything wrong at Barcelona? No, I was actually quite happy with how I played and I wanted to get on the ball and I felt that I, I showed, when we're talking about people getting scared and that, Ray Wilkins done a, spe a speech, at, not a speech, but kind of got into the lads at half-time a little bit and said that we needed to show more balls. Like, for me, some of the older boys, international players, kind of looked like they froze a little bit. And I was kind of like thinking, come on, this is, this is what I wanted to play for. And that, that's not me saying that I done great and all the rest of the lads done bad, but it just showed you that 
I've played with players, and I know what you mean, I've played with players that you would see certain games affect them or you would see mistakes affect them. I was lucky enough coming through at Chelsea where they have a certain affinity with homegrown players where you are most definitely allowed more mistakes than others. And, and it's something that will always stick with me. As I said, I, I don't want to keep using Millwall as a derogatory thing, or, but I've watched young lads make debuts at Millwall and being booed after 10 minutes. Whereas at Chelsea, that, that's unheard of. I, I'd played many a bad game and mistake after mistake. But as long as they saw you trying your hardest and wanted to do what was right, they, they gave you a, a little bit of leeway as far as making mistakes. So I didn't, as I said, as far as being intimidating and that, I think it was more opposition that you kind of felt, can I match up to this person I'm playing with and can I get the better of him? Well, you were matching up to the new Manchester City manager and I was, I was reporting on both games, paying attention, watching closely. I, I'd been across to, to Barcelona a lot as a reporter, I'd spent a lot of time with Bobby Robson, who was very, very good to me and I understood a little about their system and as a reporter who'd covered Chelsea a lot, I was fascinated by, and who liked Luca and, and Luca was very good to me. First Premier League manager to whom I could phone and ask things and, and that's, yeah. That's an enormous privilege. So I was kind of rooting for Chelsea to some degree. If I watched your performance that night with a good eye, Pep Guardiola played further and further back because you were giving him not a lot of room and not a lot of space. I remember, I'm pretty sure, first half, he took you out about just above the knee in frustration. Yeah. I remember him moving the tempo a lot and the ball came through him. I mean, yeah. maybe even more than normal because Barcelona weren't fluent. They weren't releasing... Uh, Figo and Rivaldo just as much as they normally do. I think he had probably had Koku and Gabri around him. Yeah. De Boer, Puyol at the back. Yeah. Poor keeper in Hesp. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. it wasn't great over no, the two no, legs. Yeah, no. um, he but all right for us today. <laughs> up front, kind of quite tidy. But up front, I mean, of the 5 1, as you said, because if I remember correctly, you'd played a big, maybe even a cup tie 48 hours before. You played three games in, in five days. Yeah. And you're at the camp now, maybe because people maybe think that football at Barcelona b began with Pep Guardiola, the manager. Just try and describe to people, it was 100,000 that night. What's it like arriving and going, what's the atmosphere, what's the feeling? As you come down the stairs, a little chapel on your right. Yeah, way. well, it was, for me, it was when you turned up to the stadium, I was a little bit outside, a little bit disappointed, thinking, I swear it looks bigger on the telly. We trained in on the, the mini the mini. Yeah, in the mini stadium, yeah, right, about um, 500 metres away. Yeah, yeah, so when, when we actually turned up to the stadium, I was thinking, oh, I don't know what it is, it looks, looks bigger on the telly, it doesn't look that big. But then obviously you're not realising, obviously the pitch is below the level that we are arriving on the, at the stadium, and it just showed, it, it was class for me, it was just like, it was just sunk in tradition, and even when you're going down the tunnel and then you've got the chapel halfway down and you've got some of the boys having a little prayer and stuff, and when you come out, you, it's, that's when you see the enormity of the place. It's packed, but as I said, it was even in the warm-up, I was getting, not, I wouldn't say goosebumps, but I was, so, I, I was excited going, oh, I just want the game to start. The war, no footballer likes warm-ups anyway, like, it's the most annoying thing in the world. I have no Who idea. likes stretching and jogging about? And I like <laughs> You like the warm-up side of it, as in, yeah, you can get to a little kick about, but yeah. the warm-ups nowadays are a lot more quick feet and get ready, which is fine. Listen, don't They're organised drills yeah, now. Yeah, you, yeah, you've got to do that side yeah, of it. Yeah, but yeah. I just wanted the game to start. It was kind of like, let's go. Oh, this is brilliant. The, the pitch, pitch was at this, this was at a time at Stanford Bridge when the pitch was uh, not like it is now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just wanted, a, sort of the, as I said, the game to start and the atmosphere, the, the noise and 
and the deafening noise when we actually scored a goal and the whole place went silent because obviously we only had a couple of hundred, I think, up in the... Right up yeah, in the gods. Right. And you, you could hardly hear them. So that, that, they that, could hardly see you. Yeah, that, that, that side of it was a little bit surreal, going, wow, that's got to be the quietest ever that we've ever scored a goal somewhere. And it was, as I said, it was just deafening. But you certainly knew you was in a special place. That compared to the San Siro, to me, was no, com no comparison. I thought the San Siro was great looked good and thought the pitch was poor and they gave Marcel a, a lovely... Marcel Dessay. Yeah, they gave him a great sort of stand innovation before the game that was great and it, it was really good. They all sang together. But, you know, like as far as atmosphere and that, that wasn't on the same level as the camp now. You, you've already found on and off, mate, that I dig, I'm quite an excitable type. I get quite romantic with football, evangelical about football. I remember... When Pep was being successful as a as a coach, I was rabbiting on in broadcasts, sometimes on Spanish TV in Spanish and sometimes here, about this brilliant prince of a footballer. But I remember, I'm naming him now, Jordi Lardin, who was an Atletico Madrid Espanol, Spain international, told me, oh, I don't recognise that guy you're talking about. He said, um, Pep would do anything to win. Stamp on your boot, he'd put his finger in your ear, call your mother, win, win, win. He said he was a bad bastard. Yeah. This is Jordi Lardine's word, and he played against Pep and with Pep yeah. too, as well. Any dark arts when you went head to head with no, Pep? No, no, I got a, probably just the one tackle that you mentioned. I remember he thinking, did, he went, I, I remember thinking, blind, I didn't know he, you never really saw him tackle. Well, I didn't really see him tackle in the, the, the games that I'd seen him, but. I was a little bit surprised by it, but at the same time, it was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's what you... You're nothing, getting, Yeah, exactly. Getting to him. Yeah, and, uh, but at the same time, as I said, I remember getting through the game thinking, I can't get near him. Like, I just... I was near him as in vicinity and maybe close enough, but I just remember thinking I, I couldn't... There was never any really sort of second balls or little bouncy balls in and around him. It was all... Everything was just so controlled and, like... Having seen him, so I can tell you now, without having asked him what was in his... I can't get rid of this one. As yeah. you were saying, I can't get near it. Like, if you look at the goals, three set play goals, you know, a penalty, yeah. the free yeah. kick which de deflects off Bobby Arrow, yeah. and I think there's a, a pet free kick in which you can hardly be held yeah. responsible for Danny, yeah. which I think maybe Luca might look back and say, I should have, when Danny's on, we maybe yeah. should have just watched how we covered him a little bit. And, you know, set play goals. The last, the fifth goal comes from a nice little pass, but yeah. it's, it's gone by that stage already. And yeah. I would have said that, 5-1 aside and, and going out, that was as special a performance, or as, as effective a performance as you gave against Xavi, who famously said that you were his most, his most difficult opponent. Yeah, yeah, toughest. As I said, that when Xavi kind of elevated to astronomical levels up after a few years after that game, it was, I remember someone pulling me at Millwall at the time and just said, look, we've got a, there's a camera career, you've got to do an interview for, I think it was Xavi's, Tenth, or I don't know. It was it was a celebration of something to do with Chavi. Don't know whether it was ten. Yeah, they years call it the, or... in, in Spain when it went out. They called it the Jordi Morris hour. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I had to do an interview to then be sent just to say what it was like to play because he'd, as I said, he'd mentioned me being in like an annoying opponent. I think that he was saying that every, he felt that even if he was going to the toilet, I would have followed him, which is true. This is exactly what Luca asked me to do, and uh, as I said, it is. As much as you, we're all footballers and we want to play the beautiful game, and I'd love for him to say, oh, yeah, he was doing this with a ball, great passing, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, when you've got someone of his stature mentioning you at all, as I said on camera when I was... And I spoke to someone at Barcelona Radio as well, it was the same thing. It's like, I look at him now going, 
Do you know what I mean? He's a, totally he's a hero, like an absolute hero. Whether he's the same age as me or, or not, you look at how he's played the game and you can't help but admire him so much. He's stuck in. He was really stubborn. He, he, he often says, because he had, he had an offer very early on from Manchester United. He had a very serious offer from AC Milan. In 2008, he was just about out the door at Bayern Munich till Pep phoned him and said, look, can't do this without you. And he talks about it now as just being mule stubborn. Yeah. why he didn't leave. When you look at your moment with a contract offer and not staying, do you wish you'd been stubborn and said, no, I'm going to tough it out here at Chelsea, even though I feel a little bit disrespected? Or do you say that, you know, because I, I look at you now and I watch you know, your career subsequently, you've obviously had a happy, successful playing career, except that, given your ability, you probably should have run a midfield for England Probably yeah. should have been sitting here uh, with X many years at Chelsea. No, How do you view I, it with respect? No, I'm the first one to say, be fair, I should have done a lot more in my career. I, don't, I have hold no bones about it. I should have done miles more. I made mistakes off the pitch. I made mistakes when talking about contracts are concerned. The, the one at Chelsea was making a decision I was at, because I, I could have left two or three times before that I did. And I had had contract offers that was then taken away because of stuff that had been reported uh, two years before I left and, and they said, look, we can't be seen to giving you a... There was a load of rubbish written about 9-11 that we'd done X, Y, Z, me, John, that pathetic. So they, the, the, a contract offer was taken away. They, I then got offered another contract that was less than what they offered me a year and a half before. And I'm like, how does that work? One, I'm uh, uh, further on in my career. I'm older, I'm playing, I'm, do, I'm doing well. And two, it was, it was kind of like, I know what you're paying some of the, these boys that are coming in. By the way, the homegrown players, that's one thing I can't say. The homegrown players back in the day there, we got tucked right up as far as contracts were concerned. It's not like now where you, you, you get looked after quite nicely. So, as I said, it was a, a tough decision to come to because actually leaving the club that I supported and loved was a horrible decision. But I was only going to leave because I'd actually met Graham Soonis and shook his hand on a deal to sign for Blackburn. Otherwise, I was going to sign, lump it, sign the deal that was measly compared to anybody else that was in my position at the, t at the time at the club. Effectively, I was the longest serving player, so I felt I deserved... I didn't want parity at all. I wasn't asking for any that some of the big boys were on. I just wanted to be somewhere in between of where, as I said, I was going into like 160, 170th game and they were offering me less than five times what people were getting who weren't even in... I'm looking at season 98, 99 here because I had a little check. You started at least 20, 21 games. You never lost once. Yeah, you never no, lost I'm, a single yeah, game. Yeah, I mean, as I said, it was it, that side of it, but I still would have stayed. It was literally because I, I was always the midfielder. That, and and I, I don't mind being... It was at a time when we played four in midfield. So the two central midfielders were was always... I'd always be like the third, you know? It was like, why is he in Di Matteo? And then I would come in. And then, then you'd see Deschamps come in and he would play. My, ultimately, I paid a bit more than him. That's well, not one I couldn't not understand. No, and to be fair, that's one I, I wasn't I, happy I've with. never understood it. And, and that was it, as period, yeah. He, At his he, stage he never, of his career he then, never played. he never offered anything he close to what you he did. Didn't. But you had Gus as well. Yeah, yeah Gus. Nicking goals. He left or he'd go in. Yeah, Gus was class, but, and he'd play in central midfield. So anyway, it was... But then, they, then we had Lance and Petit and, and I'd be like... Me and Lance played, I think it was something like six games together and, and we'd won five and drawn one. And it was under Claudio and I was like, I was on, I, I felt I was on fire. Lance was doing well and, 
and it was like Petit come back from injury and I felt Petit was not the Arsenal player no, um, he, at all. No. Or maybe the Barcelona one. I, 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 no, he, he didn't show it. Well, well, that's what I mean. It, no. And he wasn't a top player for Chelsea and wasn't performing. And I thought, when your team's doing well and I'm actually doing well myself and I got, I got left out again, it was always, I was that one. And don't get me wrong, it, I wouldn't mind playing, I think my last year at Chelsea under Claudio, I, I started 30 games. So it's like in today's football, for somebody starting 30 games, you say, oh, that's, that's not bad. In, in, a, in a team that finished third in the league and qualified for the Champions League, that's probably good going. But it was the fact that I would get dropped. There was one time where Claudio was playing Sam Delabona ahead of me and it was because he could speak Italian. Bottom line is, Claudio, that's no disrespect to Sam, what a great lad and a good footballer, but... I knew that I, will, I should have been playing ahead of ahead of Sam. At the same time, as I said, I, I'd taken so many knocks like that, nothing to do with the, foot, the money then, but then when it does get to the money, and you've got to talk about money, because ultimately that's what a contract is, is your years that you're playing football for, but then you've got to agree on what the money is. And when, when they was offering me peanuts compared to everybody else, it was like, I'm actually asking for peanuts, but they're offering me even less. And as I said, Graham Soonis got in touch with me, agent, went to meet Graham Soonis. He said that I would play... Week in, week out, I'll be one of the first names on the team sheet. He's, in, he's another in the category of what we talked about, of Hoddle and Luca and Hula in his own way. I mean, an impressive, magnetic man, irrespective of his achievements as a footballer. Yeah. When you're in his presence, yeah. you kind of feel no, something exactly. special. And, 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 yeah, and that's, listen, when I watch Graham Soonis, I'm glued to the box now yeah, to see what, he, yeah, what yeah. he wants to say. For me, he was a legend of a player, a legend of a guy on the, on the box. But... I went to meet him and we had Andy Cole up top. Duffers was there, and and it was. He said that he made a joke of like, blimey, we'd be nightmare on corners because we had Duffers, David Dunn, you and David Thompson. Remember Tomo from Liverpool? Yeah, yeah, and he went, Marvin Field, God, it would be a nightmare from corners or something like that. And it was like, yeah, shook his hand. Never got to money. I said, I, I don't want to get to money. My agent had told me, look, you'll get more at Blackburn than what Chelsea are offering you, and you're going to be playing. Week in, week out. Brilliant. And it was like the hardest thing for me ever to do, but it was for the love of football, really. I was just going to go and play for my career and think, right, OK, can, can I be the one that might have a six out of ten a couple of games in a row and won't get dropped? Yeah. Or, like, do you know what I mean? One yeah, of type of players. Sure. So I told Chelsea I weren't going to sign unless they offered me something reasonable. And it kind of dragged on, dragged on. And Chelsea asked me, look, are you going to sign? And I said, no. But it was because I'd shook hands with Graham soon as he said, I wanted to meet you face to face. I wanted to see the whites of your eyes. And we're shaking on a deal like men. And I was like, OK. I thought he is the manager for me. And then from nowhere, between the chief executive at Blackburn to my agent and Graham Soonis, it all fell through. I even ran Graham. I got a number off Ray Wilkins. Raise a honey, do you need you to get me Graham Soonis' number? Because <laughs> my agent was saying, no, there's no offer come through. They said it was supposed to be faxed through. And I rang Graham Soonis, spoke to him. He went, oh, I really respect this. You've rung me. You've been an adult about it. I said, I'm worried that it's fell through because you've seen me play the last couple of weeks. I think I was crap for a couple of games. He said, no, no, not at all. He said, your agent hasn't returned the offer. I then speak to my agent again, there has been no offer. So everything was lost. And it, that kind of dragged on. But when I spoke to Graham Soonis, it was like, he put me at ease. He went, don't worry, son, we'll get this done. I said, look, even if I have to come up and do it myself, forget agents, forget chief executives, money and all that. I said, I just want to, I want to play. I love playing. I have to say, next minute, nothing happened. Chelsea are pushing me, pushing me, you got to sign. And it was like, I ring Graham Soonis again about, probably about a month later saying, look, my agent's still saying nothing's been sent through. And I ring the number and it goes, doo-doo-doo. 
the number didn't ring. So it was like, I went from, if, as I said, I'd already committed to Chelsea that I was going to leave. Wisey was on to me, he'd already left the club, but he rang me up and was saying... Uh, Where was he, Leicester then? No, or Yeah, Leicester. Yeah. Leicester. Yeah. And he won me up again. I've heard your deals fell through at Blackburn. Would you go Portsmouth with Harry? And I said, yeah. Because I'm, I'm left in the lurch now. I ain't got a club. I've, he'd, he'd have loved Chelsea. He'd have let you play as well. Chelsea have just announced, Trevor Birch had just announced I've, I've left the club. So it was almost like, I need to sort something out. Portsmouth are still in the Premier League, or they yeah. just got promoted, I think. So rang Harry. He said, would you want to sign? I said, yeah. And he said, all right, well... What are you doing tomorrow? It was like a Sunday. What are you doing tomorrow? I said, oh, I'm going away on holiday. I've been waiting to, before I go away on holiday, I need a holiday. When you get back, I'll sign you son. And then he didn't get back to me either when I got back. So I'm, as I said, that's the funny side of football. I can't tell you why it fell through or why they didn't reply to me, why the number ch- I couldn't tell you any of that. It was a shame because, as I said, when you're talking about Graham Soonis and Harry Redknapp, yeah, they're two people that are obviously look up to and absolute legends of the game, but it just... In the way we've set out in these interviews previously, it's, it's to try and get to the core of how beautiful football is and avoid all the rubbish that goes on with people calling each other out and stupid headlines about meaningless things and try and let football breathe a little bit. But there's also no av- avoiding the truth that if you sit and watch House of Cards, it's got nothing on football. No. Football is, is tricksy and dark sometimes and, and maybe the worst thing apart from being in general let down is often you're not left fully understanding why. Yeah, there, there is that way. And as I said, it, it is a funny thing, football, because it can, people can get in positions of power or, or they feel that they might be spinning so many plates that they need to keep people on the, on the back burner in case one drops. And I'll say it, no, if you, you're there one, are also a lot of cheats and idiots. Yeah. There are, there are, I've met so many people who haven't pulled boots on who just have no clue whatsoever about what they're about. Yeah. That, I think, yeah. is a central part of why footballers are often need protecting by very good agents or need to be very, very savvy at a young age, which yeah. is a big ass. Well, yeah, and I, yeah, it totally is. And it was, it was certainly one of the mistakes that I made early is that I, I, I had a couple of things wrote about me in the press and I, that were wrong, and I totally, being young and, think, and know it all, I totally switched off from the press, so... I wouldn't give interviews to any journos or nothing, absolutely anything I'd give dirty looks. We'd be on an England under-21 plane with like the first team. It was when the journos used to be yeah, in the middle. The the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'd be shouting like silly things out to the journos because I, I couldn't stand them because I felt every journal, journalist is yeah. that. But that was just a young know-it-all thinking, right, if you want to write this about me, I'm, I'm not going to do any. I used to tell Chelsea that... Like, I'm not doing anything. No, I'm not speaking to anybody. Little did I know, I was just making it worse for myself. Is that if I actually spent time with some journalists who I suppose would look concentrated on just on the football, mm-hmm. they would see that I wasn't maybe as a bad lad that was maybe portrayed, or they could see that how I felt about football and I'm passionate about yeah. it. But it's been working with younger lads now. It's certainly something that you would you would hope that I would try and pass on sort of that that side to the, the silly little mistakes that I made as a, as a, as a player. And that, like you said, I have no bones. I don't, I'm not embarrassed to say one second that I should have done a lot more in my career, a lot more. Most of it, I suppose, is my fault, but at the same time, there were certain things that happened that were out of my control and didn't really go well for me. But I'm, I'm happy to be now at a place 
where it is all about the football. Well, it, it, I did say at the beginning of this that if you didn't look out, I'd tuck the hind legs off a donkey. And I know you've got a day to get on with, but so we're coming to the end. And I think that we've talked a lot about Barcelona and one of the things that I've noticed a great deal, and it's not unique to them. It's clearly true of, like, you, you saw samples of it at the bridge. It's true of the class of 92. But this thing about identity and maybe being brought through a club that you've been at since you were young or you're taught the club has a certain set of values or trains in a certain way. What did you talk about? Winning habits or winning ideas was the phrase? Winning behaviours. Winning behaviours. younger boys, yeah. You're part of a structure now at Cobham um, where there's a determined effort to make a certain sector of the coaching staff either related to Chelsea or locally brought up and also a percentage of the kids locally recruited to try and... Am I right in thinking that you're trying to build through eras which will hit first team with a significant number of people who care a lot about not just being well paid or how well they're developing, but care a lot about the club and the badge and the identity and the fact of playing at Stamford Bridge. Is that part of what's going on with you and other coaches and the strategy at Chelsea now? Yeah, most, most definitely from, obviously, recruitment. There's, I mean, even our Youth Cup game the other, other night. No, it was a cha Champions League game, under 19 against Ajax, I think. All 11, I think, of our players were can play for England. Most of them have been at the club from under eights. Do you know what I mean? So that's it's radical. Like, yeah, exactly. And that's in a, an under-19 Champions League game against Ajax in the quarter-finals. Do you know what I mean? So you vote Ajax, Ajax. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we do. We actually win the game and now we're in the semi-finals. But there's plenty of instances that, that we're, we're certainly confident that we have players that are good enough to play in the first team and ones that have been in the system for a long time. Chelsea Academy now is a lot different place than it was than when I was younger. Mm -hmm. so granted, I, I was... I was lucky to be blessed with some really good coaches and that, but the infrastructure and the, the facilities and the thought process that goes into their development now is on a whole new scale. And like you said, we have we have a way of playing. We try and add to it each year. If we have a new first team manager, we obviously it's, it'll be beneficial to us that we don't change our philosophy or change our way of playing just because our first team manager is different. But we do have to have dialogue and we do need to know what their thoughts are and on players, but also the team side of it and uh, what type of player that they would maybe look for or, or things that they think certain players should be doing. And, and we try and add to it all the time. I think that like football is always evolving and the coaches that are, at, like you said, at Cobham at the minute, there's probably a third of them are former Chelsea players, like with a third that have come through the academy, coupled with a third that have maybe other backgrounds in other clubs or, or even other sports. The opportunities that are, are there for the kids is obviously massive to see, but there is a lot of work that, that goes on behind the scenes, and particularly with people like Neil Bath, who's in charge of the academy, who, who's, for me, been fantastic for the club. And what the for us as an academy, I think we're one of the best in the world at the minute. We... You don't get to win as many youth cups and yeah, leagues under twenty one. Big winning record. Champions eh? League, yeah. And, and you, to be fair, Champions League, this, you, you, it's uh, new. Champions League, yeah. Youth yeah, League, yeah. You've lifted. I mean, that's yeah. We're the holders of that last year. That like, I mean, we've won the under twenty one Premier League. We've won the under eighteen Southern Section two years on the spin. But it's not only that. It's the way in which we're playing. Some of the football that we've played over the past few years is. Explain been outstanding. it. Is it possible from the little I've seen that it's a blend? Of the kind of football you and I have been talking about over the last hour, but also with 
an understanding of what the British game is like too, because yep. that hybrid it's important. is going to dominate the world. If yep. you ever make that happen, technique, touch, using the ball, keeping the ball, but also with our speed and yeah. power and our aggression. Well, that, well, that's the ultimate goal. I think we need to do that, particularly the fact that we are in England. We can't do exactly the same thing as what people are doing no. in Spain. But at the same time, you do take... There's been plenty of videos or anything and things like that, clips that me and Joe Edwards have put on for our under-18s of Barca and Bayern Munich, coupled with the, you'd put on the stuff from our own first team. So we're trying to get a good blend. But like it's, the, it's the toughest thing to do, I think, is one, to get so many players into a first team when the manager changes so often and, or when they just can go out and buy. It is certainly harder to do at Chelsea, but it's something that we're all striving for and, and something that we're, there's a lot of work going into. And we do believe that there's a current crop of players between... 21 to 17, I'd say, that have got a real, real good shot. Below that, obviously, there's plenty more coming through, but I'm just saying that there are literally a good bunch of players from the age of 17 to 21 that could most definitely cut it. You've won one of them out to La Liga, to Betis, not Charlie Masunda. Masunda, Outstanding yeah. talent. He's got a, he's got a lot of ability. Yeah, and, and when caught talk, my eye, quickly. When we're talking about uh, small players and, and gifted players, he's certainly up there with one of the best that I've seen as far as the use of the ball and his body movements and talking about going past players, he's he's certainly gifted, but he's one of many. There there are certainly a a good few that don't get me wrong, if they was at other other teams they might have played quite a handful of first team appearances at the minute. But that's the downside of when you want to come through at one of the top top clubs. Although this season we haven't shown it in the first team. If you want to come through the Academy at like the top teams it's it's gonna be certainly harder than it is at the teams lower down there's a link I can't um, before I uh, let you stop talking um, there's a link I can't ignore in that when people gave Pep and Xavi and Iniesta their chances at Football Club Barcelona was because of the uh, Cruyff philosophy and um, although this won't go out close to Johan's death um, he, he died this morning uh, while we were both coming to this interview and um, you mentioned the dream team and um, I wondered what it is that we can say jointly about Cruyff and his impact on our lives as people who love football and, and, and his team caught your eye, you know, as a youngster. What, what, have, we, what have we lost in, in Cruyff as far as you're concerned? One thing's for certain is that we'll never lose his impact on what he's had, <laughs> that he's had on football. is <laughs> because it will, it will stay forever. I mean, when, you, when the, the football... And the way teams play is so beautiful, if you like, that it will be, yes, there'll be different forms and it will be slightly changed a little bit to suit individuals or to suit countries or whatever. But you can't help but think that as far as impacts on football and philosophies and people like that, people that I looked up to and people I re read books on when you're talking about your Guardiolas, it's in their DNA through, through your Cruyffs. And... As I said, as much as he might have, I didn't see him as a player. I wasn't lucky enough to, to see him in the flesh. Or, But I can still feel and, and have felt the influence of a Johan Cruyff from, and I'm a 37-year-old London boy, do you know what I mean? So it's like, something, yeah. Yeah, he, he's, he's reached the football world globally and he's, it's, it's, a sad, it's a sad day for football. But as I said, the lucky side of it that we have got is that Johan Cruyff will always live on because you'll see it in the, some of the beautiful football that gets played. Bloody hell. That's not just um, very poetic, but it's cheered me up. <laughs> it's genuinely uh, cheered me up. And I can't leave you then without the last one I've seen. Is it feasible? 
and it's not embarrassing to talk about aspirations, if maybe you might have had more out of your playing career, do you think that that might be a bridge to maybe finding exactly that level of achievement as, as a manager one day, taking charge of, let's say it, well, you know, fingers crossed, because it would be right for you in every sense, it's Jody Morris, Chelsea manager. But is that your aspiration, that um, rather than just being part of the fabric of coaching in England, that one day you, you lead a club? or I'm ambitious. I, I, even when I gave interviews when I was younger, I wanted to be a player, I wanted to play for Chelsea. I want, I want to be a manager as well. I want to be, I want to coach, I want to coach at the highest level, I want to see how high I can go. And I have, I have a couple of people in football that I've probably moaned to over the years, or we've had chats, maybe like this, maybe not being recorded, but um, we've, had, <laughs> we've had chats about football, that people in the game that I, I look up to or real, real close friends of mine, and I've, I've said exactly that, what you said. I've, I've said that I didn't, I didn't get the most out of my playing career that I should have, um, but I want to try and make bloody sure that I get the most out of my coaching or manage, stroke managerial career. It, I understand that the manager side of it's a, uh, a while away yet, but I'm certainly enjoying the, the fact that I'm on the ladder. I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky and privileged to be at a special place in Chelsea, not only to have played there, but to coach there now is the beginning of a ladder that is ultimately another dream of mine. And fingers crossed, one day I might be sitting in the dugout a little bit more often than FA Youth Cup games. I've got no doubt um, with the talent you've got and your uh, impressive ability to convey things that that's going to happen. This has been, if anything, more enjoyable, more impressive than I'd anticipated and really good to share so much time with us. It's nice to uh, sit around the table, uh, the three of us, with somebody who loves football as much as we do. Jody, um, Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Apologies for the hay fever. <laughs> And off he went. Um, Jody had spent time, a great deal of time, on a day when he was supposed to be at a family birthday. And it wasn't my charm. And it wasn't mutual mourning for the greatest football man ever. It was the fact that Jody's in love with football and kept on talking because he was enjoying himself. I hope you felt the same. You probably already know that the big interview is produced by Backpage, who came up with the initial idea, and I'm the monkey in there, the organ grinders. But if you join the mailing list... You get the news and the chance to have your questions posed on the podcast to the guest of your choice. If you want all that, sign up at grahamhunter.tv. The show is brilliantly edited by Alex Ad at Audioboom. She takes the coughs and the spits, and when somebody's got hay fever and wants to blow their nose, Alex is our woman. The theme music, as always, is by Beer Jacket, an immensely talented guy. Find his music and buy it, please. It's even better than his theme tune, Snowball. If you like us, please rate us on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for loving football. And never forget that Johan Cruyff is the single most influential, most important man in football. He took the best game that humankind has ever invented and he made it more daring, more beautiful and more inspirational. What a legacy that is. Adiós.